Good morning. Welcome to Discovery's Digital Gathering. We are glad you're here. We are excited for what God has in store this morning. We want to invite you to download our app, which will help you stay current with our community and get further connected by filling out our new visitor card. Let's prepare our hearts for worship and for the adventure of discovering the good news of Jesus together. If you have a Bible, meet me in the book of Acts. Acts is in the New Testament. We are in chapter 15 today as we continue our conversation called Ecclesia. Just a quick reminder, ecclesia means gathering. It is the Greek word that's translated into church most often in our English Bibles. And we are spending significant time here in this place, in this part of the big story of Scripture, because we want to be formed in how we think about the church. After a year of disruption, of meeting online, of being socially distanced, all these these things that we've been through, we want to be reminded of, What is the church all about? And in particular, as Discovery, who are we? Why are we here? We want to be grounded in these stories that form our imaginations for what the church could be in this particular place. Now, we've seen so far over the last couple of weeks as we've gotten this conversation started, we've seen that Jesus invites us into an adventure, right? That he sends us to the ends of the earth to be witnesses to his good news. We've seen that he sends us, <clears throat> sends us with power, right, with our stories. And that power we saw comes at the beginning of Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit arrives. This incredible moment, tongues of fire coming down from heaven, people don't know what to think about it. And yet the Spirit arrives and it unites people from all over the world with this gift of verbal understanding and communication. Peter stands up in this moment. He speaks uh, to this huge crowd. He connects all these different threads of the story together, again, using that passage from Joel that we read just a few moments ago. And he says this, what's happening right now, this outpouring of the Spirit, how we're able to understand each other, it's all about Jesus and what his resurrection has unleashed in the world. And in that moment, the church goes from about 120 people to over 3,000 People. And then last week, we got into the picture, right? We got a glimpse of what this community looked like, this first church of 3,000 people in those early stages. We saw that they were devoted to each other, devoted to God, and devoted to serving the people around them. They were experiencing, living the adventure together in their day-to-day lives. Beautiful picture of the church. Now, you may be wondering, okay, <clears throat> that's the first couple chapters. Why are we fast forwarding all the way to chapter 15? Well, today we are going to uh, sort of uh, pause and step out of the normal flow of the story to look at a really practical, uh, another really practical picture and example of how the early church operated. And then we're going to connect this to a, a, a a discernment issue that our elder team and really our leadership team have been wrestling through for a couple of years now. So we're looking at how did the early church make decisions as they moved through unprecedented times and unknown territory and faced different challenges and questions? How did they figure out what do we do? How do we respond to all of this? What's the best way forward? And then what are the principles we can draw from that that apply to our situation today? In particular, what we see 
the, the early church leaders doing is wrestling with this question, how do we keep the main thing the main thing? How do we stay on this mission that Jesus has given us? To go with power and our stories, to bear witness to his good news in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So Acts chapter 15, I'm going to read the first section and then again, we're going we're gonna to walk through the rest of the story and, and name a couple of principles that we see here. Acts 15, verse 1. Certain people. I love how Luke begins this, right? You know what he means when he says certain people. Came down from Judea to Antioch. They were teaching the believers that unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria. They told how the Gentiles had been converted, and this news made all the believers very glad. When they finally came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, to whom they reported everything that God had been doing through them. But then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Now, Acts 15, we're at the halfway point in the story of the book of Acts, the, the mission that Jesus gave them all the way back in chapter 1, again, to go to Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. It's happening. Right? Gentiles are being onboarded to this Jesus thing, joining the ecclesia, and it's very exciting, and it's also very messy. And one of the messy debates of the day was, how Jewish do these Gentile converts need to become to be a part of the ecclesia, the church? And specifically, do they need to be circumcised? This goes all the way back to the Old Testament covenant with Abraham, right? This was part of what it meant to be uh, part of God's family, going all the way back to that point in the story. As we see in verse 1, some believed they had to be circumcised. The only way to be saved was to essentially become Jewish. And then here's, here's something I don't want you to miss as well. In verse 5, it says there were Jesus followers who had been Pharisees. And if you know the story of the Gospels of Jesus' life, you know this is a big deal, right? That's a big conversion to go from Pharisees who were among the main opponents of Jesus to now being part of the Jesus movement. But even with that conversion, there's still this struggle with letting go of the old ways. Again, the Gentiles need to follow the law and be circumcised. Now, there is indeed the need for a response, right? A tangible, lived response to the good news of Jesus. We talk about this a lot here at Discovery, right? We follow Jesus with our whole lives. And so it has an impact on, on how we use our money and our bodies, how we spend our time, how we treat people. All of it, all of life is a worshipful response to the good news of Jesus. But the key word there is response. And there's this human tendency, there's this human pull, right, to add stuff to the kind of pre-response, right? Things that you need to do to be saved, to be a disciple of Jesus, to be a Christian, whatever label you want to put on that. And in particular, 
In particular, when the church heads into new territory, there's always this impulse. As we engage this mission, there's always this impulse towards why change the way we've been doing it. We've always done it this way. Now, let's get back into the story here for a minute. After much discussion among the leadership, it's Peter, once again, who stands up and said, God knows the heart. God showed that he accepted the Gentiles by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. This very much connects to Peter's speech that we saw a couple weeks ago in Acts chapter 2, right? The Spirit pouring out on all people. He goes on to say, God does not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that, by the way, neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear. No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. Peter's whole point, this Jesus thing is all about grace. It's not about where you were born, what family you were born into. It's not about what you do or how well you follow the law. It is about grace. God's unconditional love and acceptance for those who believe. The key phrase there is, I think, testing God by adding this yoke. Why make it harder for people to accept a message about grace? Verse 19, it's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it more difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. What a beautiful statement, right? We do well to, to think about that. In what ways do we make things more difficult for people who are turning to God? Now, the result of all of this, they, they make a decision. The leaders get together and write a letter, and they send it to the Gentile believers in Syria, Antioch, and Cilicia. We're in verse 24 now. They explain the issue, what they've talked about, and then they say this, verse 27. Therefore, we're sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food, sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. So, not a long explanation, right? And there are some standards. This is not an anything goes community, but their explanation is very simple. We've discerned together and it seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us to free you from this burden of circumcision. Now, if you've been around Discovery, you know that we're big on this idea of discernment. We've talked a lot about the three orthos, right? Orthodoxy, right belief, very important. Orthopraxy, right action, also very important. But also we've emphasized orthokresis, right discernment. How do you take right belief and right action and apply that into our context? So I think there are four discernment principles, four orthocresis principles I want us to see here in this scene in Acts 15. The first is this, okay? This was a communal process. As you read through the story, we hear a lot from Peter, we hear from James, but this was a group decision. Us and the Spirit, conversation, discussion, debate, prayer, they come to this conclusion together. Remember, we talked about this last week, right? The togetherness of the church. So it's a communal process. Second, they err. They decide to err on the side of grace and freedom. Let's not make this more difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Third, they put the mission ahead of their personal preferences. 
And this is where we're missing a little bit by fast forwarding in the story. This is an issue that Peter himself has to work through significantly. And particularly, we see him wrestling with that in Acts chapter 10. But, but through that process, he discerns it's more important that the good news of Jesus spreads to the Gentiles, that they are welcomed into the church, than his personal preferences are upheld. And this is so important for us today. In order for us to reach people today in Davis, in Yolo County, we are going to have to put aside some of our personal preferences. And that might mean teaching styles, worship expressions, Christianese that we like to use. It might be a particular cultural issue, whatever it might be. We may have to set aside some of those things that especially are secondary issues if we want to reach people with the good news of Jesus. Are you with me? Now, finally, fourth thing here is they trust the Spirit. And again, Acts 10 is a good, good sort of comparison and, and contrast moment. There, Peter gets this very clear vision from God. Hey, the Gentiles are included in this thing. Here, there's no such vision, right? Nothing comes out of heaven or, you know, there's no angels that show up. It's just this subtle prompting from the Spirit. It seems good to us in the Spirit to do this. All right, so four principles of discernment. Communal process, erring on the side of grace and freedom, putting the mission ahead of preference, and trusting the Spirit. Now, all of that is background for our conversation today. And you're going to hear a little bit more now from me and then Scott and Yuen. For the last couple of years, we have been discussing, debating, praying, studying, and discerning what our position should be about women and leadership in the church. This began in the summer of 2019 with a book we read called Eldership and the Mission of God. Side note, great book. It, it, I know sometimes in the church there's this confusion about what do elders do and do they kind of go into a back room and make all these weird decisions. This book I think will illuminate a lot for you about what elders do. But that book kind of kick-started the conversation and then again we've been on this journey for the last couple of years to a place where today we can say with confidence it seems good to the Spirit and to us to include women in all levels of leadership in our church and specifically in the role of elder. And just to be very clear and open about the process, it hasn't just been the elder team. We've talked about this with um, people outside of Discovery, with people inside of Discovery, kind of testing our ideas and, and processing through this. But it's been done communally erring on the side of grace and freedom, setting aside our personal preferences, and trusting the Spirit. Now, two things that I want to address immediately before I turn it over to the other guys so you can hear some of their thoughts on this. In Acts 15, the threat to the church, if you will, is internal. An internal threat. The church certainly faced external opposition from local and Roman authorities. But in the life of Jesus... In the book of Acts, in the story of Paul, which we'll get into you know, in the coming weeks, they always spend more energy correcting the internal threats than the external threats. And I know with a decision like this, there's going to be a sense of like, are we caving into external cultural factors? And as we look at the larger trends in the church and we see decline, there's again this like, sense that like, oh, it's the, the, the culture is taking people out of the church. 
But it's my uh, impression, it's certainly been revealed in numerous studies that it's the internal issues that are always more significant. People are leaving the church because of internal stuff far more than external stuff. So is this about caving into some external social pressure? Absolutely not. This is about our leadership discerning together through scripture and prayer what our community needs to engage the mission Jesus has given us in this place at this time. Again, we should not make it more difficult for people who are turning to God. Now, one final thought here is there are terms that get tossed around a lot in the conversation about women in the church. And those terms are complementarian, which would interpret scripture as saying women cannot lead as elders. And then there is egalitarian, which would interpret scripture as saying women can lead as elders. Now, our conviction that we've shared today would seemingly put us in that egalitarian camp based on that very simple definition. However, I want to make it clear, we reject both terms. They are American terms that were introduced in the last 80 to 100 years. They are not connected with any creed or historical Orthodox Christian statements. They were coined in a larger cultural debate in the United States about gender and women's roles within American society. So our goal here is not so much to take sides in this debate or, um, as Scott has so eloquently put it, to deconstruct gender as an academic exercise. Our primary goal and lens is the mission of our church to help people discover and recover the good news of Jesus. We believe that in many ways, this is a, a sort of secondary issue of agreement, an issue that we do not all need to be in agreement on in order to pursue the mission together. Now in a few moments when we close our gathering, we're gonna recite the Apostles' Creed, which does remind us of the core convictions of our faith our faith in the resurrected Jesus. This is about Jesus and the good news of relationship with God and abundant life through him. And so again, let me say it very clearly. We believe women can and should help lead our church into this mission. Okay, well, my name is Scott. I'm one of the elders here at Discovery. And so I'm gonna pick up from where Steve left off and share a little bit about our discernment process and how we have come to the conclusion that we are at. So notably from within today's text is this letter that goes out. Uh, and in verse 28, I just want to reread that, where they write, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. So I think this is very instrumental for us in understanding that there are uh, certain ways that we can be very open-handed and yet very clear about where our position lies. We do believe, as Steve has already said, that the best way for us to reach people for Jesus is to include women at the highest level of leadership in discovery. And we believe that for people to come into relationship with Jesus, they need to see a tangible expression that his ways really are good news for them. Now, of Equal importance here, or something that Steve touched on, is that we actually believe this is a secondary rather than a primary issue uh, as it pertains to doctrine. And so 
primary issues would be those that we would say uh, align with orthodoxy, this idea that all believers need to believe these things about the Trinity, about who Jesus is, um, and that sort of a thing. But secondary issues are where churches can have some freedom to disagree and it will play out in the practices themselves. So probably a very notable one would be with baptism. Some churches might look and say, hey, everyone needs to be baptized in full immersion. Some people will say, or other churches will say, you can do this through sprinkling. And then there's gonna be a wide variance of disagreement. Part of what we recognize is that where the early church and even the church today gets into a lot of trouble is when they try to elevate a secondary issue into a primary status. And so that's something that we are not wanting to see happen here. We are very much okay with there being individuals in our church who do not draw the same conclusions as the leadership here and still uh, worshiping here with us. Just as in the church, uh, in the early church, we saw that there were disagreements over things like, can you eat food that's been sacrificed to idols? Yes or no. Uh, do you need to be circumcised in order to be a follower of Jesus? Yes or no. And there are people who had their own personal convictions as it pertained to these issues, but they were never elevated to a doctrinal level. Now, there are numerous instances in the Bible where we do see women in leadership. Uh, we can see this on a governmental level with women like Deborah in the book of Judges. We see it with uh, Esther in the book that bears her name. But we also see this very much in uh, spiritual leadership as well. And a primary example of this would be women who are prophets. In fact, there are four different women in scripture who are named as prophets. We have Miriam, the uh, sister of Moses and Aaron, who helps uh, lead the people from Exodus to the promised land, is referred to as a prophet. We also have a woman named Huldah in 2 Kings 22, uh, who was sought out for her prophecy. Isaiah, uh, his wife in chapter eight of his book, is referred to as a prophet. And we also run into a woman named Anna in the New Testament in Luke chapter two, who uh, gets to uh, be there at the christening of Jesus Christ. And this is just to name a few women who held prominent positions of leadership. There are certainly others throughout scripture. I think part of what's really important for us to gather here is that the Bible is in many ways elevating the status of women. And yet, the cultural situation at the time the Bible was written was very patriarchal and did not afford leadership opportunities to women. So therefore, one of the conclusions that we will draw is the Bible is actually a very, very countercultural in being inclusive of women. And what we also see then is that in the early church, there is a decision that ultimately has to be made about what's of primary importance and what are they going to do. And so we see, uh, particularly with people like Paul, that his primary concern is with spreading the gospel, not with directly attacking the social fabric of his time. And we see this with the other apostles as well, but when it boils down to it, I think they recognize that if they had made their primary emphasis to attack the social fabric of their time, all of their energy would have been devoted directly to there, and there was a high probability that they would undermine the message of salvation. 
This plays out in uh, a place like 1 Timothy chapter 3, a, a letter that Paul has written to a younger man who is starting churches and is therefore looking for some leaders to come alongside who are local and can help uh, set the foundational tone of those churches. And if we look at what is said in 1 Timothy 3, uh, as it pertains to qualifications for elders and for deacons, even though Paul never directly says women cannot uh, be elders or deacons, if we look at this strictly from a, a perspective of following the letter of what is said rather than the spirit of what is said, we would have to draw the conclusion that only males could be elders. To do so, though, would also require us to take everything else Paul says with the letter of what he says and not with the spirit. Uh, a notable example of where this would run into a significant challenge for us today is over this issue of masters and slaves. Now, a lot of Bibles today like to tone down the language and use the word servants instead of slaves, but realistically, the word is slave. And this is what is being described there. And as Paul gives instructions for how masters are to treat their slaves and how slaves are to relate to their masters, uh, we would have to draw the conclusion that Paul must have been okay with slavery. Now, this is something that we definitely reject today, but slaveholders in uh, the U.S. in our past have actually relied on that exact notion, that exact argument. And we reject this today on the basis that he is giving instructions for how institutions were working at that time, not his sentiments on whether or not he would have condoned those institutions. And in fact, we see in his Philemon letter that he actually does want to undermine this to a certain extent, but he's not going to come directly out and attack the social fabric. He's going to say, if there's slavery within Christianity, this is probably not a real good thing. Now, I've also alluded to this idea of deacons, and I want to uh, come to that to discuss it for just a moment because not only does Paul talk about deacons in 1 Timothy 3 alongside the elders, both with male-specific language, but we first see deacons arrive on the scene in the book of Acts in Acts chapter 6, where a situation has developed uh, that the apostles more or less uh, decide that they need other people who will then raise up and handle that. Now, as I already mentioned earlier, the cultural situation at the time was such that in wider society, women were not going to be afforded leadership opportunities. So whether it came down to uh, instructing Timothy about finding leaders or working within the, the church to address this issue to find leaders, the pool that they're going to have to draw from is going to be exclusively male. And so the instructions uh, end up here in Acts 6 being about um, having only males come and address this issue. With Acts and 1 Timothy, again, a, a strictly um, just a letter of what is said versus the spirit or intent would lead us to say, again, only men can be deacons. And yet, we also, if we look at Paul's other writings, so we go specifically into the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 16, Paul gives a rundown of different people to greet, several of whom are women who he elevates and really uh, shares why they have been significant in the life of the church. One of these is a woman named Phoebe, who is our sister, as he calls her, and he refers to her as being a deacon. So Paul is 
either flip-flopping on the qualifications, saying you can only have males as elders and deacons, uh, or perhaps he's confused, or uh, I would suggest a third thing that he's doing, is that he's intentionally expanding opportunities to women when and where he can. And we conclude that there's no reason to believe that Paul would do such a thing for deacons and yet have no application to elders as well. So I'm going to hand this over now to Yuen, and he's going to walk us through a little bit more. Hey, thank you, Scott. Um, hey, guys, my name is Yuen, and I am also one of the elders here at Discovery. And yeah, today as we are talking about, you know, women as elders here at Discovery, some of you guys might be thinking, man, this is, this is new, this is different, this is weird. Some of you might even be thinking this feels a little bit unnatural to you, right? And if that's how you're feeling today, I just want to share with you guys that you are not alone in that, okay? Um, my personal background, I grew up in churches that were strictly leadership in the church is for men only. Not only that, I've led Bible studies and I've taught that leadership according to scripture um, in the church is for men only, right? And so I can tell you that, you know, on day one, when we have our first woman elders, I'm, there's going to be a part of me that's going to feel like, huh, this is a little bit weird. Having said that, though, over the course of the last two years, as we have an, as an elder team have been praying, diving into the Word of God, talking about this together, I think I've been moved from a place of, hey, this is weird and weird is bad to, hey, this is weird for me, but weird is exciting because we believe that this is where God is leading. Um, not only where God has been leading through scripture um, in all of history, but where God is leading us in our moment right now and what it means for us to be good news uh, to discovery, uh, to, at Discovery and to the church here um, within the city of Davis. So what I want to do for just a few minutes is share with you guys kind of some key passages and kind of bring you along in that journey of kind of how I've moved um, in this. And this is really important, right? Like I'm not sharing this because I'm trying to convince you that you have to take our position, right? Like Scott and Steve shared earlier, this is a secondary issue and we can absolutely agree to disagree, okay? What I, why I am sharing this with you though is I want to share with you some of our heart. I want to share with you that this is where we're coming from. And at the bottom line of this, this is us, about us faithfully pursuing uh, the word of God and seeking where he's leading, okay? So I'm just going to go ahead and dive right in, okay? And I'm going to dive right into kind of the four most kind of typically contentious showstopper passages on this topic. The first two we can handle uh, kind of as one because they're kind of the same thing. First Timothy chapter 1 verses 3, 1 to 7 and Titus chapter 1 verses 5 through 9. Now these are typically kind of going to be your qualifications for an elder passages where it's going to list out a bunch of things um, as Paul is talking to Timothy and Paul is talking to Titus about what to look for in an elder. And if you read these, and I'll just read part of it here in First Timothy 3, here's a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, etc., etc. And the Titus passage is very similar. Now the kicker here, right, is when people look at both of these passages, they look at all the male pronouns and they go, wow, clearly an elder has to be a man. Now, here's the thing, right, Paul was writing in a patriarchal society where the male pronoun was going to be the default. 
right? So it shouldn't be surprising that he's writing using the male pronoun here. Pretty much everything was written using the male pronoun. Kind of similar to us in English when we say things like mankind or history, right? We're not talking about just men. We're talking about all of humanity, but in a patriarchal society, the language that gets used tends to um, move and lean towards kind of male pronouns. Um, now the other one here is the faithful to his wife. Right? Um, that phrase there, a lot of times people look at that and say, well, clearly an elder has to be a man. But in the Greek, that phrase there is literally a one-woman man, right? which is talking about um, in a culture of polygamy, this is talking about marital fidelity, this is talking about um, not being sexually promiscuous, this is talking about monogamy. It's the same reason that you know, throughout most of, church, kind of churches here in America today, like we allow single men and widowers to be elders. Right? Clearly, our understanding of this passage here is that it's, Paul is not talking about marital status. He's not talking about gender. He's talking about character. Right? And for us at Discovery, it's the same thing. It's about character here. Right? So when you ask the question, will we at Discovery have qualifications for elders based on character? Absolutely. But will we have qualifications for elders based on marital status and gender? No, because we don't believe that's what Paul is talking about here. Okay? That's the first two verses there. Or passages. The second passage here is 1 Corinthians 14, 34 to 35. I'm going to read that one. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for women, women to speak in the church. Okay, if you just read that at face value, it's like, what? Right? Like, what is Paul talking about here? Um, and I think it's really important, right, to understand here that we have to look at the context in the bigger picture. Okay, just earlier in chapter 11, Paul talks about women praying and prophesying within the assembly of the church, and he was okay with that, right? Um, and so clearly this is not a blanket prohibition against women speaking um, in the assembly. The other thing to recognize here in 1 Corinthians is that 1 Corinthians as a letter is actually the third letter within a series of correspondences between Paul and the church in Corinth. Right? Paul wrote a letter to the church in Corinth, they wrote a letter back to him, and then he's writing back to them in 1 Corinthians. And so there's a whole bunch of context here that really we're jumping into the middle of a conversation. And if you just read 1 Corinthians, it's pretty clear that Paul is dealing with and addressing some very specific issues. And these chapters here, kind of 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, Paul is really talking about orderly conduct within the worship assembly. And this phrase here, be silent or remain silent, he actually uses this for multiple groups of people. Right? He tells people who are prophesying out of turn that they should be silent. He tells people who are speaking in tongues without somebody there to translate that they should be silent. Right? So he's saying that they should never talk or they should never prophesy or they should never teach. No, but he's saying that there's an orderly way to conduct things. Right? And so whatever he's getting at here um, about kind of women remaining silent in the churches, I think it's pretty clear that this is a specific contextual thing, that issue that he's speaking to about orderly conduct within the worship assembly and not a blanket statement prohibiting women from teaching or leading because clearly he was okay with that just three chapters earlier. The last one here is going to be 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 to 15. And again, I'm going to just read this. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Okay, again, if you just read that at face value, it's like, Paul, what are you saying here, right? Are you saying that women should be quiet in church? They 
can't have authority in church and they should just like have kids and that's it like that's the role in the church right i think clearly if we look at the broader scope of scripture that is not what paul is saying here again we have to back up and look at the context of what's going on first timothy as a letter right was written by paul to timothy who was pastoring at the church in ephesus and if you just look in chapter one what is paul trying to address here? he's dealing with a situation where in this church there were false doctrines being taught by teachers by people who wanted to teach but were not trained or properly equipped to do so. Add on to that the fact that Ephesus was home to the Temple of Artemis, and Artemis, the Temple of Artemis was a female-led religion, and you can begin to kind of understand the context of what Paul is speaking into here. When he talks about here, um, he doesn't allow a woman to assume authority over man. That's actually a very powerful word there, assume authority, okay? It's really talking about usurp authority. And I think what might be going on here, right? Like it's possible that, you know, Paul is making a blanket statement for all women across all time that they should never have authority or teach. Or he could be saying that there's a specific situation going on at the church in Ephesus where there are some women who are not qualified, right? Not yet trained to be able to teach, but they're trying to usurp authority and turn the church in Ephesus into a female-led religion, just like the church of art or the religion of Artemis, the cult of Artemis that was in Ephesus, right? Now, in all three of these passages, clearly highly, highly contextual, right? And I think all of the epistles are highly contextual. If it was just these three passages, I would say, okay, there's some complicated context going on. That's kind of the hard work of what it means to try to understand um, the Word of God in its immediate context and understanding what to draw out from that in terms of the mission for us today. But the real kicker for me and what moves me from a 50-50 like, hmm, interesting to excited about where we're headed as a church is when I look at the bigger picture of what's going on in all of redemptive history. Right throughout the scriptures for hundreds and hundreds of years as the word of God and the scriptures were being put together, I think it's pretty clear that at every moment and opportunity, the word of God has been pushing against the patriarchy of its day in order to remind his people that women were created as equals and have a huge role to play um, within God's mission and within the kingdom of God. Right? If we just start with Genesis, right? Genesis 1 and 2 and the role of women there, right? Created Eve created as equal to Adam, right, taken from his side, um, as full image bearers of God and given kind of that cultural mandate to have dominion over the earth and to cultivate it along with him. That was hugely countercultural. Then you look at, you know, prophetesses like Miriam, you look at the judges like Deborah, and then you fast forward to, to new creation, right? Who were the first people to witness the risen Jesus? Who were the first people to share the gospel and proclaim that Jesus has risen, that new creation has come? It was the woman, right? Jesus chose to appear first to women. And then you, you go on and on into the story of Acts and you have, you know, deaconesses like Phoebe and you have, you know, apostles like Junia and, and on and on. And really, I mean, even you look at who was the first person to probably exegete and, you know, lead a Bible study on Romans, it was probably a woman because Phoebe was the person that Paul chose to actually have deliver the letter of Romans to the church in Rome. And so if they had questions about what Paul meant, who were they going to ask? probably Phoebe, right? And so I just look at all of this in the bigger picture. And so yes, there are some confusing, highly contextual passages that we can split hairs about, or we can look at the big picture of what God's been trying to do. And I look at that and I go, man, like it seems like the mission of God is moving us in this direction to allow women to be fully participatory in the mission of God and to use their spirit-given gifts um, on mission to help people discover the good news of Jesus. I want to end with just this last point here, which is this. 
But when we talk about women as elders here at Discovery, we're not just talking about the few kind of handful of women that are someday going to become elders here at Discovery. We're talking about this because it has a trickle down effect on all women within this church community. Right? If you think about it, what is the message right, that we're sending to, to our college students and to, to our young daughters that are going to grow up in this community? Right? Are they going to look at the leadership within God's family, right, within the church, and see a men's, a boys-only club that says, hey, you might be incredibly gifted at preaching, at teaching, at leading people, but you know what? You can't use those gifts to your full extent here in the church, right? Or are, you know, our daughters and our young women going to see a community that says, hey, God has intentionally created you, God has intentionally gifted you to be on mission with him with all that you have because you are meant to be a full participant in the mission of God. Right? That's the type of community that we want to be and what gets me excited. Having said all of this, again, it's a secondary issue. We can agree to disagree, but I hope you see some of, kind of my heart and our heart as we've moved in this direction. And again, I'll be the first to admit that on day one, when we bring on our first you know, woman elders, there is still going to be a part of me that's going to be like, hey, this feels weird, right? But it's going to be a weirdness that's going to be mixed with a whole lot of excitement because we've studied the scriptures, we've prayed about this, and we believe that this is the direction that God has, that God's word has been moving towards for all of redemptive history and that the spirit of God is leading us towards now. So with that, we're really excited about kind of where we're headed, um, and we're excited to follow God on his mission here. Thank you. I want to thank Scott and Yuen for sharing with us this morning. Being able to do this together as a team um, has been fun. Our hope is that this gives you some things to think about, to ponder, um, and even to question. And, and we do welcome conversation and dialogue about this. But ultimately, our hope is that this is a thing, uh, a decision, a discernment process that continues to unite us around the mission. Uh, doctrine is super important, theology is super important, but in service to the mission that God has given us. So along those lines, we want to uh, prepare for communion today. I want to invite you to, to get your elements, whatever you have uh, in front of you this morning. As we prepare for communion, I want to read over us the Apostles' Creed. This is a historical Orthodox Christian statement that followers of Jesus have agreed upon and been reciting for almost 2,000 years. One of the oldest statements of faith that we have handed down throughout church history. So let me read this, and then the invitation to you is to take together the body and blood of Jesus. We believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And we believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived from the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, who was crucified, died, and was buried, who descended into hell and rose again from the dead on the third day, who ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, who will come again to judge the living and the dead. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, Catholic there meaning the global church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting, right? Forgiveness of sins, 
resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. When you're ready, take and eat the body and blood of Jesus.